and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 126. I'm John Bean. In today's episode, we're going to talk about climate insurance. Climate change is currently affecting our planet in catastrophic ways and insurance is playing a big role in how we can think about our future. So today we're asking, our climate is changing, should insurers be doing more? Join us while we take a deep dive into this very urgent topic and take a look at what the insurance sector is currently doing and what more it could do and how we could all get over any existing or future blockers. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director of Insurance at Google. How are you today, Nigel? I'm very well. I'm hoping to be less tongue-tied than you, Mr. Bean. And I'm back in my broom cupboards, so there's no escaping. I'm looking forward to this one and our current climate crisis. Tongue ties will go out on the blooper show. Hopefully it will be nothing but (laughs) solid recording from now on. Next up, we are joined by Lisa Wardlaw, insurance digital strategist. How are we doing today, Lisa? And can you give our listeners a little bit of information about yourself? Not in my cupboard today, so Nigel, I I have a little bit more freedom for this discussion. (laughs) Um, No, I've spent, um, I guess, the better part of... 25 years working in and around insurance, um, both from the corporate side. So kind of grew up at PwC and then Munich Re and then Farmers Zurich. But now more, more recently, I'm focused on geospatial and applying geospatial to insurance, trying to solve the white space in particular around and surrounding climate change and how do we accelerate the industry's response to it. Well, it's fantastic. To have. I know we've spoken many times and I've been desperate to get you on the show for a long time. So I'm glad we finally got you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Next up, we have Steve Bennett, Chief Climate Officer at Demex. How are we doing today, Steve? And can you give the listeners a little bit more information about yourself as well? Sure, absolutely. All good here. It's uh, it's nice to meet you guys for the first time, John and Nigel and, and Lisa as well. Um, I've been in weather and climate my whole career. My undergraduate degree is in meteorology, um, but my postgraduate degree is in law. So I'm probably the only weather lawyer you'll ever meet. I'm probably also the only meteorologist that you'll ever meet that says nobody cares about the weather. They only care about what they have to do because of the weather. And that's how I've spent most of my career. I've been in uh, multiple organizations linking weather and climate to business decision-making, investing, financial risk. I spent over a decade working in media and financial firms before I started my first company, uh, which was back around 2010. Uh, We started a company that built technology for uh, supply chain, and we basically sold software to Fortune 500 companies. Some of the first really fun applications for that was we helped Fortune 500s uh, optimize their shipping for mayonnaise and beer uh, around the ambient temperature outside. So that was a fun early project. That company was acquired by DHL and uh, private equity group in late 2019 which is when I joined up with the group that, uh, that founded Demex. So we founded the Demex group in, uh, right at the end of 2019. And your, your name is familiar to us because Ruth from Anthemus has talked about Demex quite a bit in the past. And if I'm correct in reading your bio, Steve, you've missed out the piece that said you're a weatherman. Yes, I'm a, I'm a meteorologist slash weatherman. Uh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I was telling you guys before we started the recording here that uh, one of the points in my early career, I worked for the Weather Channel, which is a, a television cable network here in the United States that's all weather all the time. Um, it was a fun job early in my career, and that's where I was first told that I had a face for radio. So they kept me behind the scenes making the graphics, uh, you know, telling the weather story, uh, talking to the on-camera meteorologist. But I think I... I think I was only on camera twice during my time at the Weather Channel, always at the expert desk, never in front of the green screen. And is the Weather Channel still going? I, 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 can't, I can't imagine a show that just shows weather is still running, or is it? Or is it? It's still going. <laughs> I think they just had their 30th anniversary. Uh, it is still, it, if you can see my camera, it's on the TV behind me. <laughs> uh, so I tend to watch it all day, every day. Uh, it's still going strong here. Oh, well, congratulations, The Weather Channel, and great to have you. It sounds perfect, John, for the British audience. I mean, literally, they start every conversation with the weather and turn on The Weather Channel. <laughs> so, uh, but, 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 getting back to the show, but, 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 like, like any good uh, runner or cyclist will tell you, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. 
Yeah, my gran used to say the same thing, just being unprepared. It's not about the weather. Yeah, I spent some time in uh, in the Bay Area in San Francisco and so got out to Napa Valley a lot. And many winemakers will also tell you there's no such thing as a bad year for winemaking. There are only bad winemakers. Well, they'll say that in Napa Valley because it's always nice weather. <laughs> <laughs> not always. <laughs> right, let's get, let's get on with the show. Let's get on with the show. Um, given your history, I'm going to start with you. What the, basically, what is the climate landscape looking like today? What, what's the nature of systemic risk we are seeing? It's in flux. Um, so the best way to put it is that uh, climate change is certainly affecting the, the distribution of weather events that, that are loss causing um, for the insurance industry from, uh, from convective risk. So hail, tornado, convective wind to hurricane to flooding, you know, flooding rainfall, both coastal flood and, you know, rainfall oriented flood, the, the distributions are changing based on a changing climate. So climate change is essentially affecting, uh, the easiest way to think about it is it's affecting the jet stream pattern around the, around the globe. The jet stream drives weather patterns. So as the jet stream changes, weather patterns change. The, the other important note is that it's not it, it, it's not the same everywhere. So climate change is very localized, meaning some areas are getting drier, other areas are getting wetter. Some areas are actually becoming more prone to winter storms, snowstorms, blizzards, those kinds of things. Other areas are becoming much milder in the winter, so fewer snowstorms, maybe more rainstorms, or maybe just less overall precipitation. So one of the common sort of misconceptions from a climate change standpoint, and I don't see this misconception very much, if at all, in the insurance industry, because I think the insurance industry understands these risks at a pretty good degree. But one of the common misconceptions is that climate change equals global warming, so everywhere is getting warmer, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Most of the impacts from climate change are very localized. I mean, from those changes, I mean, Lisa, quick one to you. I mean, do you think we're seeing insurers think differently about climate change and the changing patterns in weather that Steve described? You know, that's, that's such a great question, right? So we, we have predominantly a what I would define as a historically static industry, an industry that was built on looking back and using decades, if not centurions of historical data to then price, rate, scale, and then, you know, accept and, and you know, issue risk. And the, the pattern now that we're seeing, at least with pioneers and leaders in this space is, there's kind of two categories, John. The pioneers, I would put in a acceptance and realization that it's now moving from static to dynamic. So just as Steve highlighted, m much more eloquently than me, Steve, is this constant continual change in an unpredictable manner. And so what pioneers are doing is, how do we now as insurers take this dynamic kind of calculated, I'll go so far as to say real time, you know, what's going on with the weather, and, and it's going to be this mix of not just big storms, but, you know, intermittent flooding, how does that affect us? And they're moving towards a dynamic model. Now, I haven't yet seen it adopted for pricing and usage based or real time, I'll call it um, risk protection. The laggards or uh, people who are trying to maintain status quo are saying, well, how do I see more and do more, uh, maybe notifications, maybe prevention, um, some form of loss mitigation, but they're still kind of interjecting that into a static pricing product model. So it's this combination of tiering that I'm seeing, John, and, and, and I, I would say that where where we need to get as an industry, we're still not really getting after this, you know, um, uncovered population or, or coverage gap. So we really need to hit hard on these dynamic models and dynamic products, which again, we'll get there during the show. I'm sure, sure we'll talk about that. But that's what I would say is like the biggest thing that I'm seeing that's, that's missing. Like, how do we take static and dynamic and create flow? How do we create fluid continuity of this very um, empirical real-time data and weather that we can now produce into our insurance pricing product um, models, which of course, ding, 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 leads to things like technology, data streaming, all these other things. Yeah, so I, I guess there's almost three angles to that really then. There's, there's the first, which is how do you get this real-time data exchange and actually how do you create products that, that can operate with the real-time? The second one is 
Well, how do you move into the mitigation space? If, if it's not real time, how, how can you mitigate and reduce these risks? And I guess the third is just how do you price for them? If you're not going to do either of the first two, can over time, can you price these risks in? Yeah, we, we can unpack some of those as we go into the future of the show. I guess one of the things you're looking at there is frequency and severity, right? And I think both frequency, you know, what used to be described as one in a hundred type events seem to be happening a lot more frequently right now, whether it's flood, whether it's wildfire, whether it's hurricane. And I, you, for folks that listen to the show, you all know I'm a crazy movie buff and I can't not sit here and think about the day after tomorrow and what went on with New York libraries that's just down the road or San Andreas with The Rock and whatever else and all these movies that are showing catastrophic, you know, events happening and as a net result, what that then does to cities or localised areas to Steve's point. But I actually, whilst they're science fiction and Hollywood-style films... I also, think that, I also think they're a good way of getting people more aware of the things that are going on. You know, it's all too often in the climate scenario where we see, oh, that will never happen to us or it's not here. And now we're seeing, you know, we saw wildfires in the UK Absolutely. where the temperature hit 40 degrees for the first time, I think, ever um, just a few months back. And that was an unheard of event. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we then look to what's going on in Europe and we see rivers that are dry for the first time in in years and you see uh distressed stones what was the word I, I saw that were used stones that showed um fear of famine or elsewhere when rivers reach certain levels so there's there's lots of these things which almost showing history starting to repeat itself and we're seeing these insights from 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 these events that are now happening more frequently and these things are they're all connected so, I mean, I th if you think about this as a, you know, if you think about this as a distribution, so think about it like a bell curve for whatever event, whether it's, you know, rain or temperature or snow or whatever, um, what's happening is that whole bell curve is, is shifting. And so what we used to call cats, you know, natural catastrophes, the one in a hundreds, in some cases, those are becoming closer to one in twenties or, or one in tens. What used to be a one in a thousand might be looking more like a one in 500 or a one in 250. So the whole, it's, it's the whole range is beginning to shift, uh, you know, along with the means. And there's science to suggest that perhaps the tails are changing differently than the middle of that distribution as well. So I mean, there's some of that going on too, but I think it's important as we think about this to, to think about, I, I, no offense, Nigel, but I, I try to sort of step back a little bit from the day after tomorrow kind of situations and and say that certainly there are there are that's what I would call a mega cat, right? Like that's the those are the kind of things. It doesn't matter how the industry's positioned because we're all we're all going down together. You know, I think there are an awful lot of those things out in the tail that are in the cats or the you know, there's a there's a term I've I've heard used and have used myself a few times. You know, on the the kits versus cats. So the, you know, the smaller events that are becoming more frequent. So you just have a lot more of them in a year, and they accumulate to be of the level of a catastrophe. But the single event may not be a catastrophe. Yeah, I think focusing in there is where the industry can probably make a lot of um, headway. And I think. I think it was John a minute ago who sort of said, you know, thinking about this from the three different angles is, is, a, is a really strong approach. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Steve. And to your point, Nigel, about the, number, the frequency, um, last year, the World Meteorological Organization released research suggesting the number of weather-related disasters had increased fivefold over the past 50 years. So I, I think these patterns are changing. To your point, Steve, the bell curve is shifting. I guess a question, Nigel, I'll fire this one at you. I mean, who is driving kind of the... I don't want to say the war on climate change, but who is driving the response to climate change? Is it is it been insurance or is it other industries so far? It, it's a good question. I mean, in fact, scrap that piece about it being a good question. It's a terrible question. I'm joking. I'm not sure any particular industry is driving it. But if you step back to the World Economic Forum or any of the folks that look at you know the top 10 risks or the top 10 global risks year after year, there's always a some great insights that are coming out. And, and lo and behold, you step back to the report a few years back, global pandemic was on the list, but we didn't know anything about that. Global cyber was on the list and we're still addressing that. But equally, you've got climate change uh, on those um, world's biggest risk reports that are, that, are, that are out there. I think insurance, whilst, whilst not necessarily driving it, has one of the biggest opportunities to lean in and help address it. 
And whether that's us ensuring or not fossil fuels and dirty energy and all the things that go with it, all the way through to promoting and providing support for cleaner energy. And we've spoken about this before with, uh, with Sean and others on the show. I think insurers have, or insurance organisations, have the best opportunity at leading the conversation given that almost everything that we do is built upon this foundation. So I think we've got a really strong opportunity to be at the forefront of this change, but we can't do it alone. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a really good point. It's a really good point, Nigel, because most people think of sort of the physical, you know, the damage that hurricanes cause and all the rest of it and in how insurance play in that. But I think it's, to your point, it's really important not to forget, you know, how do we drop fossil fuels or capital going to risky assets, therefore further promoting risky businesses? You know, how do we redirect that capital to help become greener and help the climate change? And I think it's it's great to look at it from both those sides. Lisa, I'll fire this one over to you. How are insurers preparing themselves? So if, you know, Nigel said there's a great opportunity for them to lean in, how are they preparing themselves for a world where risk is on the rise? So yeah, if I, if I think of like every annual report, right, is talking about losses and new risk categories. I, I think that the, the first thing that they're preparing themselves for is uh, just an obvious, you know, awareness that losses are not going to come down, right? Like Like generically, we are going to have to deal with a world in which you know, continual events are on the rise in more frequency and higher severity to the point, you know, that, that I think that not accepting that, but accepting, you know, the cards that we're being dealt. So, so I think what we're trying to do is like, you, you can't change cl- climate from an insurance perspective. I mean, yes, we can do things that are more sustainable and, you know, work together. And, and like, I think insurers are, are clearly leaders in that space. But the other side of this is how do we protect our communities? How do we protect our individuals? How do we protect our societies, our properties, our assets? And insurers have long had a mutual interest in that, which is how do we increase coverage? So you've got kind of two things happening. We've systemically had a coverage gap forever, right? There's always been this gap of, you know, just to explain that for people who may not, you know, nauseatingly eat, sleep and drink or live these terms, but, you know, there's Property that's covered, meaning people buy insurance and then the insurers have to step in if something happens and they have to make whole on that that amount. And then there is this other property or denomination of property which is not covered by insurance. So it's it's uncovered per se, or let's just take like a million dollars, maybe $200,000 of that is covered. So if there's a catastrophic event and a hundred, a million is the loss, you know, there's only 250,000 coverage or 25% just to keep the numbers simple. So there's, there's always been around like hovering this 50% ish. I'll just round, I'll keep the number super uh, simple coverage gap. And in addition to that, so you've got this coverage gap that insurers have long been trying to of course, seek insurance protection, but some sort of protection on the the financial communities, the properties, the people, the damages. So that's been a systemic issue that everyone's trying to say, how can we pierce the coverage gap? At the same time, for the portion that is covered, the you know, 47 to 50%, as climate change and risk goes up, so do the natural static pricing tables, which makes that less affordable, which could have the, the impact of increasing the uncovered or expanding that coverage gap. So insurers, you know, John, to be simple about it, are trying to attack it from both angles. What they're trying to do is find remedies to prevent early notify, early detection, and kind of like, you know, build a moat around uh, damages. So, So how can we notify earlier, loss prevention measures, communication strategies, a, a, a lot of simple, low-cost things to do to prevent or, um, if you will, decrease damage when damage is going to occur. And then the second thing is, you know, you'll see things like new, uh, parametric products and combination indemnity products. How can we create things that are going to, I'll say this a little tongue-in-cheek, offer a more simplified solution to maybe a more layman customer that might want to buy something that's quick pay, like parametric in its original form. We've made it all um, complicated, so I'll say quick pay in this like sense, but 
it should be something like you get $10,000 if this occurs, here's $10,000, no claim process or adjudication or loss verification involved. So what, what I see in the industry is, of course, a multifaceted approach. And that multifaceted approach is how can we come after, you know, decreasing loss so that prices don't exponentially go up so that people, you know, can continue to afford insurance. And at the same time, offering more, um, you know, simple issues, simple pay concepts to go after this coverage gap. So long-winded answer, but you, my, I guess my opinion is you can't do one thing to solve this. You have to do multiple things and you have to do those at the same time. And maybe challenge to our industry, we, we're very conservative, kind of wait and see, let the law of large numbers and the actuarial tables, you know, prove it. We need to react quickly and much more dynamically, which is not something that insurers are, you know, natively great at. Again, this look back thesis. So we need to kind of do a little bit of all understanding that the law of large numbers will take care of us. So I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, Steve, are, are we seeing, um, as to what Lisa explained, are we seeing insurers move into this space and starting to make it happen? Or is it that it's not happening fast, either it's not happening at all or it's not happening fast enough, or we are getting there? No, I think we, I think we are moving in this direction. Um, so, I mean, I, I would start by being complimentary of the industry to say that I think the insurance industry as a whole has actually been out front on this issue for a long time. Um, so it was probably around 2005, um, I was working for a hedge fund in Chicago that backed a couple of reinsurance companies in Bermuda. And at that time, the I think it was the Willis Research Network at that point was was actually beginning to focus on uh, research. They were funding research projects with the the idea being that those research projects would then feed into some of the cap modeling organizations that would begin to because I mean that's where that's where the physical science gives you a law of large numbers, right? Um, we're able to we're able to take these physical components um, in the atmosphere. And, and basically reproduce them in a simulation over and over and over again. Um, and that's essentially what a cap model is, right? Um, so I think the industry has been way out front for a while. Uh, and I think the currently where I see the industry, and, and I, I also think the industry is, is moving forward in this space. It comes back to some of the things that Lisa was mentioning on parametrics and you know some of the new products that are being introduced in in that area, um, you know, I think we we have the technology new, now to do some form of dynamic pricing. To talk about, you know, to go back to a topic that we mentioned earlier in the show. So the this idea of dynamic pricing, where the 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 actual state of the risk is allowed to inform the price of that risk. I I, I don't think we're at a point where we're suggesting that dynamic pricing should be high this year, low next year, high the year after that, low the year after that. I, I, I'm of the belief that that's probably not a sustainable way to, um, to conduct insurance. It may be a, a reproducible way to conduct, you know, uh, capital markets frameworks, but, but not, not so much in insurance. Um, but I think we are at a point now where the science allows us to do dynamic pricing, meaning we're able to assess today the impact of climate change on a particular peril for uh, a, a reasonable period of time, meaning one, two, three, four years into the future, like just having a sense for what the distribution should look like in the near-term future. The science is also there to look 40, 50, 60 years into the future, but I think that's a whole different that's a whole different uh, game when I think about at least the the markets that that I see. So I mean I, I think the I think that the industry is moving in this direction. Is it moving fast enough? I mean never, right? <laughs> I mean would we ever say yes to that question? But I th I think we are beginning to see movement in this direction. Is that movement driven by particular geographies where we've experienced, you know, wildfires in California or in Germany? Uh, are we seeing particular pockets or geographies that are leading this space that have, have had to deal with these catastrophes earlier than others? Or, or is this kind of a global response? I think it probably is um, being led by geographies where 
either they've they have experienced these losses or they are sort of more informed that there is a risk of these losses. So, you know, you you mentioned wildfire specifically, and I think that is um, that's an area that that is rapidly being innovated. Um, I think there's a lot of focus around that. It's also one of the hardest areas to innovate in um, because the the factors that lead to wildfire are are multivariate. Um, so if you if you shift your view to something like maybe snowfall, where the you know where property can suffer losses due to an extreme snowfall event. The capabilities for modeling that event are more straightforward than they are for for wildfire. So a market like that has actually been seeking out this type of protection for you know several years now, more than a few years, and it's an area where the where the analysis and the technology can meet the need um, relatively quickly while we continue to innovate for things like wildfire. Wildfire is probably the hardest individual hazard um, to to really get our heads around. We can talk a lot about the the weather conditions that lead to fire, but fire also has a fuels component. So you've got to you've got to take the the vegetation. It's also got a um, it's also got an ignition component. So how does the fire start? Um, so it's a that's that one's a pretty complex. What's the spread zone. look and like? What's the, exactly, and how does it burn exactly? What's the wind look like? I mean, there's so many factors to that one. I mean, to to your question though, John. I mean, locality is interesting. I think Steve mentioned that earlier. You just look at what's going on in Florida right now with the property crisis that's given there from a flood insurance perspective caused by a downgrade of a number of insurers. As a net result, premiums have gone up, made it unaffordable. As and you know, if you can't get insurance and you are then hit with flood, what do you end up doing? Do you end up moving out of where you are? Um, we haven't really talked about it much at all, but the other thing here would be, what is the government intervention across each of these things as well? I mean, I, I remember a show we must have done probably in the first 20 or so, we had Oliver on from the FT, and he and I both lived near each other in London when I was in the UK. Um, but we also said, why are we allowing, why, why are governments or local planners allowing us to build houses on floodplains or go and build houses in areas that are consistently uh, prone to um, wildfire or elsewhere. So we've almost, we're almost setting ourselves up for failure sometime. You know, why go build a, why go build a house on the edge of a cliff if you know it's eroding at one meter per, per year or per 10 years and in 10 years time it's going to be uh, uninsurable or even uninhabitable or not even there. That will lead on to a great discussion for the second half of the show. Right, so now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series. Weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around. Such as... On Rampy. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So the next piece is all about, as the risks continue to evolve, what can and should we be doing? Let's look at, uh, we've now looked at how things have stood. Let's look at the challenges and more importantly, the opportunities going forward. Lisa, let me start with you. I guess as climate risk goes up, how do we continue to ensure, I guess, our health and our homes here? What, what innovations have you seen and what are we likely to see in this space that will make a difference going forward? This is almost a precursor to ITC and all the cool things we're going to see in the next three weeks, right? So I think from a, there, there's a couple of layers of that, Nigel. Of course, there is the like product innovation layer. There is the, um, you know, underwriting and um, pricing innovation layer. And then there is, honestly, there's the data techniques and, um, you know, input innovation layer, right? And, and so I, I think all three of these things have to work. And so, yes, it is a precursor to, to ITC, but I think all these all these three things have to work in um, tandem one another, and I don't think it's linear. So we're going to see, you know, <laughs> see we're going to see a nice little weather pattern created, if you will. Um, you know, ho hopefully, like we're have you know, different fronts creating different weather patterns within. Um, okay, so if I start on the very consumer end, Nigel, <clears throat> I think we're going to have to 
you know, in our world where we have multiple products coexisting and complementing one another. So, so I predominantly think, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in, in parametric and working on parametric design and parametric products, and they're all very complicated. They're all very big kinds of, you know, like um, airports and municipalities and things like that. And, and I think as a consumer, we're going to have to really get to a um, quick pay, if this, then that. I think of like as a supplemental cash kind of, like a prepaid cash card, right? Like how do we get some money to people immediately in the time of need, whether that's 5,000 or 10,000 or whatever that is. And I, and I think there's going to have to be um, a change in pricing and structuring. We're going to have to make that faster and easier and, and the able to carry the high volumes that will need to be issued. And, and I guess also from a insurance agency perspective, we're going to have to lots of like boots on the ground, educating people that this is just like a compliment. Like you wouldn't just have a prepaid cash card and not have, you know, a banking account or, you know, like a line of credit or whatever. So, so part of my, my theory there is we're going to have to do a lot more of that, a lot higher volume, a lot simpler deals. And also the technology should be in place to do that. The second layer, of course, will be, I think we're going to have to innovate in indemnity products themselves. I think we're going to have to kind of bifurcate up the indemnity product into different tranches um, based on more dynamic based pricing um, and but creating some stability to that. So so how will that work? I think the reinsurer is going to have to like come in heavy here to back the carriers and some of these, you know, these are going to re be really big data really big risk aggregation kinds of product innovation. So I kind of see uh, the reinsurers, by the way, at least, you know, in the U.S., uh, back approximately 85 to 90% of all catastrophe losses anyway. So I think we're going to have to spread that out um, and, and really get this kind of real-time consortium. And then I think in the in the enablement part, and this is, of course, where the insure techs come into play heavily, we're going to have to solve for real-time information. So how can we take real-time information now and do something with it? Um, I'm certain Nigel, you as a, as a technologist and Steve from the weather, I mean, you both know that we have information available at our fingertips that we can actually do something with. And so the, the conundrum is not in, you know, the data and all the different combinations of the data. The, the conundrum comes in We've created like point solutions. We've over-indexed on point solutions, but we haven't really created a consortium of these things to come together because I don't think it's any one linear path. It's it's the multitudinous of this all combined together. And as an industry, Nigel, I don't think that we've been able to put all those things together to solve for the new product innovation and the proper pricing that consumers are gonna need. Um, I'll, I'll just double down on one because Steve, Steve was alluding to this earlier in the first half of the show, which is um, flash floods. <laughs> flash flood has actually become a much more sizable loss than something like um, a catastrophe. And, and you know, for those of you who have studied Ida quite extensively, Ida sunk Louisiana, but I mean, my husband's from there, so I can say this, like, it was built on a swamp. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's Louisiana. The shock in Ida was the flash floods that came up in, in the northeastern coast, so, right? So Ida really, the damage from Ida, of course, was Louisiana, Florida, you know, some of the cascading parts. But really, it was the uh, backlog of the sewage systems in New York City and New Jersey, and just that breakage, which really by definition was associated with Ida, but it was flash flooding. There was no, I'll say, um, InsurTech location, geospatial solution that I'm aware of that in the moment was able to capture what was going on in Ida. We, we all got there eventually, right? If we think like two weeks in arrears or three weeks in arrears, we were all able to, um, diffuse and centralized data and understand like what happened but we missed it in the moment and, and steve a little bit like predicting the weather right we you know moving satellites and constellations is hard to do you know like in the moment and so we're gonna have to get much better as an industry at flash flooding and i'm using that as a very specific example right because people were displaced homes were displaced we all know 
water contamination, uh, sitting water, et cetera. So how do we work together with these things? And clearly, I'll just amplify, right? The government programs are not as immediate or certainly not as sophisticated as our private programs either. So we're going to have to work together to actually lift the government programs up so that people can get things like their payouts more like faster to avoid things like mold, et cetera. So I'm going way deep in this, but I think it's important to understand the cycle of it because we always just think like, oh, if I had the data, I could do something with it. It's the combination of these things, not any one thing in isolation. And if I could build on that actually on the Ida example, because I think it's, I think Lisa, I think this is a great one. I think this example is really, really good of where the industry can go. And it backs into some of the points that you made about how the industry should get there. So. I, I think the the ability proactively going forward from here to put some form of a of a small scale parametric in place. And when I say small scale, I mean aimed at the you know aimed at the homeowner, the renter, the you know you know at the baseline level where a, a certain degree of displacement is done, but it's not a you know it it's it was based on rainfall rate. Right. So it wasn't simply that it rained a lot. Right. It, it rains a lot in the northeast United States, a lot. This was rainfall rate. It's how much rain fell in such a short amount of time is what caused the backups here. Um, that is a um, that is a tackleable problem for technology in weather and climate science today. So we can understand the distribution of that rainfall rate in geographies. Therefore, we can begin to price it. Um, and once we begin to price it, you can imagine a world where um, where parametric policies may be baked into a renter's insurance policy or a homeowner's insurance policy that begins to cover um, the smaller scale of loss, meaning somebody who's got to leave their their apartment for a week while mold remediation is done, while you know new drywalls put in and the, the remediation techniques are done. You could imagine a policy, basically a, a parametric sitting inside the renter's policy that basically offsets that degree of loss. Like I, I think we're, we're at a point today where we can price those risks. And what we're looking for is for the industry to begin to uptake those risks. Um, that kind of comes back into your earlier points of, of it needs to be easy, right? Like the, the, the policyholder needs to be able to get a quick payment. Um, absolutely, totally agree with that. And then up the stack, as you come up toward the reinsurance stack, the reinsurers need to see a, um, I don't really know how to say this, let's so put it bluntly, they need to see the profit in it, right? They, they need to see that there's going to be a return on investment for doing it. It's not all about the loss, right? It's about being able to diversify the premiums that they're collecting it's about being able to ensure that you're not going to suffer this particular loss in 10 regions at the same time. So, you know, therefore, you've got a positive return on the premium that you've collected. I think Ida is a great example because I think Ida is a really nice example of how you can begin to see that model unfolding. I think we're already moving that direction. It raises a couple of a couple of interesting points, Steve, because, you know, we start talking a lot about different insurance solutions. Parametrics been raised multiple times. R the use of real-time data, but you've got to have the products and services to be able to, to actually deliver those via the insurance companies. I think the other interesting one is if you start talking about sensors and more real-time data and having this kind of constant flow of of information between consumers, especially if you move away from commercial into the personal, where we talk about smaller, simple products, you bring in the whole element of, <laughs> we talked about it a lot in here in terms of that trust between insurers and the customers, you know, that you're going to use my data for the right things. And actually, you're going to help me not just pay out if something goes wrong, you're going to help me with the mitigation. And, and that brings in a real trust element between the consumer and the insurer. It'd be remiss of me not to mention one of the very successful insurtechs out there, Flood Flash. So I know you've been talking about Flash Flood, but look at what Adam and Ian and the team have built um, at uh, Flood Flash and the sensor and the technology they put inside organizations that allows for the immediate payouts post water reaching certain levels. So I think actually you, we've started talking about how we solve it from a end consumer or corporate perspective all the way up the chain through 
um, the reinsurers and elsewhere. And actually, one thing that we have to admire about the insurance industry is, whilst we all get frustrated with not doing things quickly enough, we are outstanding at learning from history and events that have gone on in the past, whether they're climate events or otherwise. Your actual points you're making, Steve and Lisa, reminded me of the Chinese explosions in the port back in 2015, when we didn't know what vehicles were on what ships or what the concentration risk might have been because of all these things aggregated together. And actually, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, if only we knew an organisation that had mapped the planet at a huge scale that is easily accessible via uh, an API or otherwise like Climate Engine and Earth Engine from, from Google, um, there are some many, some brilliant sources of insights that are out there that are, and, and many others as well, of course, that insurers and others are now able to leverage to try and get some more real-time or near-real-time insights. So rather than doing this uh, on an annual basis, we can actually do it on a much more frequent basis that will then impact what we choose or choose not to do day in, day out. Um, I think, Steve, you mentioned hail as, a, as another weather condition earlier and there's another startup out there, Hail OS, that you know has sensors that we've got that are out there we've worked with the likes of farmers edge that puts iot technology in uh in fields and in farmers hands to work out when and how you plant and whether you should or shouldn't do these sorts of things so actually we're getting much smarter and informing people about when and when they shouldn't be doing things ask any builder when they're trying to put a roof uh, on and the rain comes or they're trying to lay bricks and the cement doesn't set. So this is this has all got a an immediate impact on individuals, economy and so much more. I guess question to all, John, John, let me start with you. What else could we have done to avoid some of the cat catastrophic outcomes? Or are we doing enough? I think it I think it touches on some of the things we've mentioned. I mean I go back. I mean, we've we've mentioned a couple of the um, the startups. There's one called Exanti, which does protection for. So they do parametric insurance for hurricanes. So if if a hurricane is is triggered, they release the funds instantly pre landfall. So actually, people can can build, you know, get the sandbags, get things in advance, and actually help with the prevention to mitigate the losses. I think that's where we could go. Is I find as a insurers, we're very, very good at being reactive. You know, we're very, very good at assessing after the event. Um, payouts, we've got a lot better at being faster with the payouts, reducing the supply chain. Um, I think all those things are fantastic. But for me, and it goes back to the points that you were raising, Lisa, is how do how do we act in real time? You know, if we see something that is about to happen, whether it does or doesn't, how do we trigger the funds or trigger the actions in place ahead of something happening to help mitigate? And that, that could be whether that's months in advance or re even whether it's just days or hours. But that for me is if we're going to move away from this kind of just being reactive to actually being proactive and mitigating, we've got to get a lot, lot better getting those funds out early and then having almost step-by-step -step things that you could do in this particular catastrophe. And, and that's where I think we'd start to build trust and you could do that at any level from a customer level all the way through to a large commercial level. You made me think of, um, so like, so I did spend two years of my of my career in uh, logistics at the Home Depot and um, working global supply chain. And so, I, so I'm, I'm fully disclosing that because um, part of where this in my mind, the inevitable path that this needs to take and has to take, okay, kind of flashing back to, we've already said that climate change is upon us, you know, these types of weather patterns are going to continue to emerge in a much higher frequency and higher severity level. And, and we're big enough to, to um, anchor in and protect communities and, and the people that we serve in, in a way that they're, they're not going to have to be just taken along for that ride. So what can we do about that, right? So I think that, of course, um, notifications, preventative measures, um, you know, things like if you do this in advance, there's a lot of startups that are helping with sprinkler systems and, you know, IoT and notify here, notify there, you know, connecting to telematics and cars, getting cars out of harm's way, getting people out of harm's way, you know, all the, all the things that we can do, getting your electronics off the basement floor, getting them up, you know, what does that mean? But I, I would say all of those things are really a, direct to consumer, um, John, hearing you talk, like, I think we'll have like mini little quick, quick three second podcast. Like, here's what you can do now. Here's a tutorial, right? Like helping people. But ultimately, if I think about like, you know, my experience, like what happens after a storm, right? 
what goes up. Like, why are losses so costly? It's not just the loss itself. It's the reparation cost. So materials, here's going to come the supply chain angle, materials and labor go up at least 40 to 50%. And that's before COVID, supply chain store shortages and all these things. So, and I'll also qualify this by saying I used to do treasury as well in, in another life. Um, so if you start to think about using real-time predictions and on-demand in intelligence, to now start creating a derivative exchange and future um, acquisition of materials and labors before it hits landfall. So Steve, and to kind of like take that example of parametric where we're giving people money, now, and the insurers are big enough to buy in bulk. So now we're gonna go buy, you know, wood and sheetrock and generators kind of like as things are unfolding. And we're gonna kind of almost create a new economic yield curve within supply and demand that's a little bit of a future forward. So we're gonna do this in bulk and we're going to then depress the cost or, or lower the cost of repair back to, I'll call it a pre-catastrophic level. So so I fundamentally believe, and I won't name any names because I know some, some big, very big large companies working on the themes along these lines. I think we're gonna start to see this evolve. So. And I think that's going to be the real sophisticated play here, which is we're going to notify the consumers, we're going to get quick money in their hands to get them out of harm's way, and we're going to, you know, take the time out down. So how long are they out of their home or their buildings? But we're also going to amp up on how do we get labor and material costs to be more pre-storm events. Yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've raised a couple of points here, but you've actually just linked it all back quite nicely to underpinning our entire industry is data. And it's not just data of a thing that's here in front of you or above you or below you, whether it's flood or or hurricane. It's actually all the adjacencies as well. And this has happened if you look at the supply chain more broadly, whether it's for vehicles and the supply of vehicles over the last couple of years post COVID. Look at the uh, the queue, the, the queue as a cause from the shipping issues in the in the canal. You know, all these things cause backlogs to supplies of wood and vehicles and so much more. So having that supply chain twin or insights into what's going on in and around you is almost critical to actually make sure we, we, we protect here. One, one last question before we wrap up, and that's given the economic climate that we're currently in, I guess, what's the risk that people go, we just can't afford it or we're prepared to take a bigger risk right now on things like climate cover specifically? Are you seeing much of that, Steve, or are we now making it more accessible and more modular there for people are buying bits and pieces as opposed to more broad cover? It, it's sort of both. Um, so if I, if I sort of bridge from the last question to this, to this question, I think you, you're right, Nigel, in that everything starts with data and then it's knowing what data to use in what instance. So I, I see this whole thing as a three phase. It's a three phase action plan essentially. So part one is you need to have the data to underlie the, the risk itself. So what are the odds that the bad thing is going to happen to you at any given time, right? So having the best possible understanding of that, that allows you to develop your plan, right? So we can't, in, in many cases, in some cases, maybe we can stop the bad thing from happening by building new infrastructure or whatever. I'm leaving that off to the side for now and saying that there, there will be a lot of events that we know are going to happen. So we put the plan in place to take action once we get the information that suggests we need to put that plan into action. And that's where sort of understanding lead times are important. So on supply chain for something like moving materials or pre-purchasing materials ahead of a, a significant storm event, I mean, you're probably looking there on the need for a week or more, right, of, of lead time in order to be able to not materially affect the market that you're actually trying to get, get into. So you need to understand how the two data sets mesh to give you the lead time to go in and make those purchases. And then the third step is making sure that you can recover post-event. And, and that's where I think the, the question that you just asked, Nigel, comes uh, mostly into play, which is, um, there, I mean, we always talk about, you know, uh, companies, et cetera, that, that self-insure, right? That basically they're, they're not going to buy a, they're not going to pay a premium to protect themselves from some bad event occurring because they're just going to hold that financial risk themselves. 
I think that gets increasingly challenging in this world because I think a lot of people don't really understand exactly what they're self-insuring anymore, right? Because they're they're basing it in many cases the the uh, this individual or this business doesn't have the information that the insurance industry has. So the insurance industry is working on these law of big numbers. How are these events changing? But the business itself really only knows its own history. It only knows what it's experienced. It doesn't know what a broader swath has experienced. So I think self-insuring is is more and more dangerous over time because the distributions are changing and the cats are coming more than they used to. So I think it's a two-prong. I think sort of buying the big coverage, but also layering in the the smaller pieces, you know, the ability to protect against both the loss of an entire structure due to a catastrophic event, but also protect the loss of use of that structure because of mold remediation or things along those lines. I think there's a huge investment opportunity there for the insurers and reinsurers there's a huge business opportunity in that smaller tier because you can diversify the risk because you can spread that out just like you do with the cats and the limits are a lot lower so overall you're taking less risk and you're able to diversify that risk there's a there's a real opportunity there for the industry to to build new business models, essentially. I think you're right. And I think we will see more and more folks get to the worlds of self-insurance. I've seen a whole host of things in this recently. Your points remind me of an article I was reading at the weekend about airlines continuing to hedge for the fuel crisis that's going on right now. And some have hedged through, you know, uh, 2023. Others have hedged through 2025. And that allows us to maintain a dynamic. But equally, your point about business model change We've seen more and more products come to market where if you don't use them, you get a percentage of the of the policy back as a rebate. So look, all of these things drive innovation and drive opportunity to bring out new products to market and, and, and much more. But it's a, it's definitely a, a topic that I think will have much scrutiny over the coming months and years and is certain, certainly one that's not going away anytime soon. Um, John, with that, back to you. Thank you, Nigel. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? We'll start with you, Lisa. I just say LinkedIn. So Lisa Wardlaw or lisa.wardlaw at gmail.com. Brilliant. And Steve? Uh, so we, the company is the Demex Group. We are the demexgroup.com, D-E-M-E-X, the demexgroup.com. Uh, or anyone's more than welcome to reach out to me via LinkedIn personally as well. It's just, it's Stephen Bennett, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Bennett on LinkedIn and search that in conjunction with Demex and you'll find me. Brilliant. And finally, Nigel. As always, fighting the good fight on Twitter at Nigel Walsh or LinkedIn at Nigel Walsh. Fantastic. And you can find me, uh, John Bean, on LinkedIn or you can find me via 11FS. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider, or you can find us on Twitter at InsurtechInsiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much, everyone, uh, and goodbye. Goodbye.